0: welcome to the contemporary educator podcast a podcast dedicated to all my fellow teachers out there who are trying to balance the many demands placed on the contemporary educator this podcast episode is a little bit different just because I have been working the past few months on creating a trauma-informed practice course for teachers so those of you who have been listening and sticking around with me for the past few months uh, and have been following along on the blog and the podcast uh, this is kind of the first module, I guess, for the Trauma-Informed Practice course. The course, of course, is going to also include a lot more detail and will also have like slides and worksheets and uh, materials and tools that you can use in class, including resources, journal prompts, etc. All things that you can use to make your classroom Uh, more mindful and trauma-informed, but this episode is a recording of what the first module sounds like and some of the details from the first module that focuses on what exactly is trauma-informed practice, why are we talking about it, why is it a latest buzzword in schools, and how can we make this applicable to us as working professionals. So I hope you enjoy it. If you have any feedback, please feel free to send it to me. If there's things that you feel are missing or questions you want answered, please feel free to hit me up. Otherwise, uh, enjoy. And this is the trauma-informed practice for a therapeutic classroom course to simplify your classroom management. To start, I don't love the term classroom management, but the objective of this course overall is that you will have a trauma-informed space, a therapeutic classroom, and uh, you won't really need to manage your classroom at all. It'll become really easy because your students will feel heard, respected, and seen in your space, and um, you'll have some strategies on how to best approach that for all of your students. So who am I? I am a teacher, and I'm also a registered clinical counselor here in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And so I know that, you know, teaching practices vary from country to country, but trauma-informed practices kind of don't. Um, Being trauma-informed is being trauma-informed. So please know that regardless of where you teach, this information will still be applicable to you. My teaching experience, I have 10 years of teaching experience. And even though I did my practicum in a mainstream classroom, I actually have mostly taught in alternative education settings. So that means a space that doesn't really conform to your typical school structure or necessarily even a schedule. Um, it has to be and and know by nature is really flexible and fluid in its nature so for instance the first place that I taught was a youth custody center which is like a youth detention center I love that term but I um, yeah I worked with primarily young men some young women in youth custody and that had to be really flexible because you didn't know who you were gonna see from day to day. Your classroom dynamics would change very abruptly. Um, Some students would be there for an entire year depending on their sentencing, but some students wouldn't be. Some might only be there on remand, meaning they breached probation and were coming in for a few days before they'd be released again. So you had to be really, really flexible and ready, ready to change at a moment's notice. Then I taught in mainstream school for a year in a middle school, and uh, then I was also a counselor in a middle school. Then I taught in another alternative school for uh, young folks who are struggling in the mainstream school system. So that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because they were struggling with severe mental health. It could also be because they didn't feel safe in the mainstream system, for instance, we had a number of trans students who really didn't feel safe in the mainstream school system, and so they came to us. And we also had a young parent program for young moms who were pregnant and or parenting, and we had a daycare attached, so they could come to school and be with their babies at the same time. So... That also required a lot of flexibility, and um, it was a self-paced program, meaning students could be working on one course and finish it in a month, or they could be working on that course and it could take two years. It really allowed for different circumstances to come up and to really remove the shame of not following a specific arbitrary schedule that was district-imposed. So that's my teaching experience. Now I'm in a mainstream school and I teach in, in a regular classroom. Uh, my counseling experience, I um, first started out counseling in, on a high risk team here in Victoria. What that means is that it, it, um, you work with young folks who are experiencing imminent suicidal risk. So they have expressed suicidal ideation and they are at imminent risk of suicide. So they'd be referred for crisis and critical care counseling. I also, while working on that team, worked with child and youth mental health, where I helped conduct anxiety groups for young people struggling with anxiety, ages uh, eight to twelve, and then also anxiety groups, ages twelve to eighteen, and. Um, as did drama therapy groups, which was really cool. And then I've also been a counselor in an addictions, inpatient addictions treatment. So young men who would be referred for inpatient treatment, either mandated by court or um, a community counselor might recommend it and they would make a referral or alternatively, the young person could check themselves in for inpatient addictions treatment. So all that to say that the young people that I've worked with would be who you would consider stereotypically uh, having experienced immense trauma. And there's no doubt about that. That's absolutely true. It's important to note, however, that regardless of where you work, what demographic you think that you're working with, every single young person should be treated as though they may have experienced some form of trauma because they likely have. And that's a really sad reality that we're living in, but it just is the reality. So, having trauma-informed training will better equip everyone for creating a really safe space for every single student. And it's kind of universal design, right? If you create a safe space for all of the students who need a little bit more comfort and safety, then every student is gonna feel a little more comfort and a little more safety. So what makes this particular training unique? Trauma-informed training is everywhere nowadays. Uh, Well, when I did my trauma-informed training, when I worked in custody, it was while I was doing my master's in counseling degree, it wasn't run by a teacher. And so it was great, it was very informative, but I wasn't able to take practical strategies back to my classroom. I have also seen trauma-informed trainings run by inclusive education and school counselors also great because they work very closely with young people who are exhibiting the kinds of behaviors that we'll talk about throughout this course. However, it is a really different role in a school than the main classroom teacher. And I am a main classroom teacher. I teach in a regular mainstream classroom with 30 kids in my room every day. Um, the other thing that makes this training unique is that um, it's geared a little more towards middle and high school, because that's really where I specialized. Many of the things that we talk about will absolutely be relevant for younger children, but you might hear some things, or even some of the language that seems a little more geared towards middle and, and secondary school. And a lot of trauma-informed training is geared towards really young kids and students, elementary ages. And although that's helpful, behavior looks a lot different when kids get older, we're not seeing the same kinds of behaviors and the same kinds of strategies just don't cut it in a high school. However, many of the strategies that we employ in high school can cut it in elementary school. So uh, that's kind of where I'm coming from with this training. Throughout the scope of this course, the objective is that you learn more about what trauma is. How it presents in behaviors and how to address those behaviors. The best ways to create an environment in which you see fewer of those kinds of behaviors and how to support and nurture students through those experiences um, in a way that is, I guess, less demanding for you as a teacher, too, because our jobs are already really difficult. We have a lot on our plate, and being trauma informed does not make you a therapist. If you're looking for more information about any of this as we go, you'll see more of it on my blog, thecontemporaryeducator.com. You can find me on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat, or you can find me on Facebook, the Contemporary Educator Facebook page. So module one, what is trauma-informed practice? What does it mean to be trauma-informed? We're going to look at trauma-informed practice definitions, types of trauma, impacts of trauma on the brain, and how this impacts learning. And Why do we need to have trauma-informed teachers when there's already a school counselor and there's already an inclusive ed department who often we refer to when we have behavioral issues in our classrooms. So just a quick disclaimer, trauma-informed practice is not a substitute for counseling training or the health care and specific psychological care that someone receives from a registered mental health professional. If you know that someone is struggling and you know they're struggling without support, I really encourage you to reach out to a qualified professional or your school counselor who may be able to make referrals to a community based support system. Furthermore, it's a really great start to be trauma informed, but it's also about being trauma inclined, how do you then take that information and make it actionable. Um, So that's part of the scope of this course is that you will find strategies, resources, language to use that will help facilitate the change you need to respond to trauma in your classes. So some terms and definitions, we'll just start. Trauma-Informed Practice is also, you'll also see the acronym TIP, TIP, acknowledges that people's history of trauma has an impact on their behaviors and the way that they relate to the world. Being trauma-informed implies that there's an understanding of the impacts of trauma on personal, social, and cognitive development, and on one's ability to actually regulate their emotions. Trauma-informed practice acknowledges one's ACEs, so you might have seen that term around, and you might be familiar with it, which refers to adverse childhood experiences. The types of things that um, a student would have lived through up to this point in their life, just the difficulties that they may have experienced. Trauma-informed practice understands the impacts of trauma on person, social, and cognitive development, and it's an understanding that someone's perspective on the world is filtered through their lived experience and their innate ability to identify and find safety for themselves. Trauma-informed educators understand that behaviors do not happen in a vacuum, and behavior, academic success, interpersonal relationships, critical thinking are all impacted by trauma. Uh, Some of the myths of trauma-informed practice, and I've heard all of these ones: it's only for at-risk youth or at-risk families. That's just not true. The bottom line is that's just not true. Everybody, regardless of how they present, in the first moment um, has experienced trauma. And there's also a lot of different behaviors and presentations for trauma. There isn't one demographic that um, is more, well, I guess there is a demographic that is more likely to have experienced trauma. However, um, you can't come into what may look and appear to be a very privileged school and think that trauma-informed practices are relevant there. Um, the second myth that I've heard is it's only the counselor's job. And I noticed this a lot in middle school when I was both teaching and counseling in middle school. It didn't matter what the situation or what the perceived crisis, students would be referred to the counselor. And I would be sitting at my desk and all of a sudden I would have a student who didn't have an appointment knocking on my door because their teacher had sent them down. I understand leaning on your colleagues for support. However, in a lot of these situations, having some trauma-informed understanding could have decreased the need for that. It's not about not wanting the student to make a connection with the counselor, but a lot of times the classroom teacher is the one that the student sees the most, they feel the most comfortable with. They don't always want to go see the counselor. They don't always feel comfortable talking to the counselor. So understanding trauma And knowing how to create a trauma-informed space and a a trauma-inclined space um, is the teacher's job too. It's not just for the counselor. And number three is the biggest myth that I hear would be that it takes too much curricular time to implement trauma-informed practices. And I get it, like we have a lot of curriculum and especially during COVID, like everything for me has been condensed down into 10 weeks, which is nothing to teach. So I get it, the risk of losing curricular time, or if you've got a class that has a big exam at the end, or you've got a lot of content to cover, it's totally a worry to lose that curricular time, particularly in high school. However, trauma-informed practice takes no time at all. There's a few strategies that you can implement even before your class starts at the start of the year, and it's really just a few minutes each week. Once the tone and the environment is set, it's a breeze. It just becomes second nature and it's part of the culture of your classroom. So there are some different types of trauma. really tra- Trauma is trauma. Um, but we often think of trauma as being the acute trauma is the one that we, we think of the most often. So the single overwhelming event where we think of, you know, a big natural disaster, car accident, assault. However, there's many different layers to trauma. There's also complex trauma, repeated exposure to traumatic situations, and crossover trauma, which results in lasting overwhelming effects, such as PTSD or other trauma-related diagnoses. We are going to talk a lot more about uh, diagnoses in module two because they are really important to understanding trauma and trauma presentations. I'm so sorry for that little ditty. That was my dishwasher finishing. Anyways, it's also important to note that somebody's social response to a traumatic disclosure has just as much weight and bearing as the trauma itself. We often think that the single overwhelming event is what has the lasting repercussions. And yes, it does. However, if a student comes to you with a disclosure, the way that you respond and handle that disclosure, the validation that the child receives has just as much impact on their overall healing. So that's a really important thing to note that um, we'll talk about it again later on, but responses to trauma are significant. So there's a term we hear a lot, especially with younger kids, witnessing trauma. So we'll hear somebody talk about when a child witnesses abuse, violence, or another traumatic incident. Yes, yes, it does cause trauma to the child. I am certainly not disputing that whatsoever, but I would like to consider a reframe of language. Witnessing trauma really minimizes the actual extent to which a child experiences that trauma. So rather than saying a child witnesses abuse, they experience that abuse. Rather than saying a child witnessed a violent incident, the child experienced that violent incident. Children are not passive observers of violence. They are not passive observers of abuse. Through those moments, those traumatic moments, they are seeking safety for themselves. They may be seeking safety for their siblings. They may be doing any number of things to try to minimize the impacts of that trauma on themselves or their siblings. There, that in no way uh, tells me that that is a passive witness to these experiences. So rather than using the term witnessing, you might hear me say experiencing because I think it puts the right kind of emphasis on, on what level of trauma a child has had to endure. We'll talk about language refrains a number of times throughout this course, and they're really important for trauma-informed practice. So trauma's impact on the brain so much. And I know when I first did trauma-informed practice um, 10 years ago now, and it's it's advanced since then, even, um, this was like such an eye-opener for me because I, I knew that trauma had an impact on the brain. I didn't realize quite how lasting it could be. And when you start to see the comparisons between behaviors that students might be exhibiting in your classes and connecting that to which part of the brain has experienced trauma, it'll just be like light bulb moment. At least it definitely was for me. So trauma on the brain demonstrates an altered function of neural pathways of the developing brain. This means that there's an increased difficulty developing new neural pathways, which means an increased difficulty in learning new skills and, um, and developing those skills. Early infant trauma, neglect, abuse, and unhealthy attachments leads to impairment of the early development of the right brain stress coping and maladaptive infant mental health. So basically, you know what, I'm just going to go through these. I'll expand on some of them a little bit, but we're going to talk more about what this actually means in the next one. This is just specifically the type of trauma. And these aren't physical traumas. These are emotional traumas. So like I mentioned before, it could be acute trauma, it could be complex trauma, it could be crossover trauma, but these are the types of impairments that we're seeing on a developing brain. The negative impact of traumatic attachments on brain development can lead to disorganized, disoriented attachment pattern associated with abuse and neglect. And we'll talk more about attachment in module four. Uh, there's a link between the orbital frontal dysfunction and a predisposition to post-traumatic stress disorders. So disorders with an S, um, because post-traumatic stress falls under like an anxiety category, and we'll talk more about anxiety as well, um, because it's a it's significant, super significant. There's an increased dissociation and in mind-body, sorry, sorry, body-mind psychopathology. So dissociation, for those who may not have heard this term before, if a young person is dissociating, it kind of means that they are leaving their body. They might be zoning out, they might be taking themselves to a safer, more comfortable place, but it's a coping strategy that happens pretty instinctually um, to transport a young person from a stressful or traumatic environment or situation to one that feels safer. So dissociation is a really, really common coping strategy, particularly with uh, younger students and and in high school. And lots of times young people don't even really realize that's what's happening. Uh, Trauma-induced impairments of a regulatory system in the orbital frontal cortex. Um, Oh yeah, I mentioned that damage or impairment can lead to impulsivity, uh, poor decision-making, Anxiety when faced with challenging circumstances and decision making. So that's really important to note as well. Um, that when there is damage to the orbital frontal um, lobes, it can lead to um, it can it can lead to difficulties making decisions. So we see that a lot in our young people. Um, relational trauma has an impact on enduring right hemisphere function. So. Basically, the right part of your brain controls visual awareness, emotions, imagination, spatial abilities, interpreting social cues, among a lot of other things. That's a significant part of our brain to have um, to have an impact on. And these are the qualities and behaviors that we often see from our young people. Those who have difficulty making relational connections with their peers or even with you as the teacher. Um, youth who experience traumatic stress secrete higher levels of glucocorticoids cortisol than youth with no trauma history. So what that means is um, the corticosteroid secretion leads to neurotoxicity in areas of the brain rich in glucocorticoid cortisol, such as the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex. These two areas of the brain are involved in memory processing and executive functioning. So I just really want to emphasize, as you're listening through some of these slides, start to think about which of your students maybe are struggling in these departments. So these are this is what neural pathways are supposed to look like. Normal, many connections, um, many healthy, strong connections, and they're firing pretty constantly. Those are developed in a stable nurturing environment with healthy attachments. However, exposure to major adversity in early childhood can weaken brain development and weaken some of these um, neural pathways. It can make it more difficult to create new neural pathways and um, it has fewer connections. As scary as this can be to look at and to think about, research does show that this can be fixed. This isn't a necessarily a lifelong sentence. Um, building new attachments, building healthy attachments uh, can help to correct some of this, this damage. So trauma in the brain, the amygdala is the part of the brain that can, uh, with the emotional computer and the alarm system. Hippocampus is recent memories, the thalamus, is sight, sound, smells, and the prefrontal cortex, where information is used to make decisions about cognitive and emotional responses. So those are a couple of the things we've already talked about. The amygdala is also considered like the reptilian brain, and you might see with damage to the amygdala, you might see um, much more reactive responses, big emotional responses um, that seem a lot more volatile and hostile. So, Furthermore, we've got typical development, if we look at the pyramid, uh, survival is the smallest point of the pyramid. So it's still the first step, but it's the smallest, least significant portion, because safety is already a part of their life. Then you've got regulation, social, emotional, and then cognition. So as a developing brain is, uh, as a brain is developing, Cognition gets to be the biggest part of the pyramid. That's the thing that students and young people are able to focus on the most. If you look at developmental trauma, survival is the largest piece of that pyramid. And I think this is a really good visual for it because, yes, everything is still in the same order, but survival becomes the biggest piece and it becomes the biggest um, need for young people to pursue Why would they be concerned about focusing on their schoolwork and developing their cognition and cognitive abilities when they're focused so heavily on survival? So what does this mean for learning? We've already talked a little bit about that, but uh, all of these areas of the brain that get damaged when a young person experiences trauma has direct impacts on their ability to learn. It can lead to memory loss, difficulty concentrating, a decreased ability to learn and absorb new information, trouble with social engagement and relationship building, decreased ability to remember verbally provided information, though they're still more likely to recall visual info, difficulty exhibiting and understanding emotions, a heightened fear response, decreased performance on attention-based tasks when presented with triggering images, words, sounds, or situations. The difficult thing about that last one is that you may not know what images, words, sounds, or situations are triggering, and the young person might not know either. Um, It it can happen quite quickly where a young person feels a very big emotional reaction to what it is that they're learning, even if it seems out of context. So just to give a little bit more context here, um, the difference between a PET scan of a healthy, normal brain and an abused brain. So you can see that there are areas of the brain in which they're just not developing. So um, trauma has a significant impact on childhood development and therefore on behavior. So why do we really need to focus on trauma-informed practice in schools? We've already talked about trauma impacts a student's ability to learn, we know that. Um, trauma impacts both students with and without an IEP we often think that the kids who are going to present with behavioral challenges are the students who have already received a designation uh, an individual education plan who maybe are already connected with school supports like counseling or with inclusive ed that's just not really the case Um, many 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 young people go their entire lives without receiving any of these added supports. Many students get well into high school before their difficulties are acknowledged. We also have to look at not just the behaviors that can cause uh, disruption in class, but we also have to look at the behaviors that show disengagement and inability to focus. So another reason trauma-informed practice is really important is it just helps you to understand the real root behind a behavior response. This is really crucial. It helps us to set appropriate boundaries and respond in a kind, compassionate way um, in what can be a really frustrating situation. And we're put in frustrating situations all the time. And so being trauma-informed gives us that pause. And some of the skills that we'll talk about throughout this is how to find that pause and how to kind of flip the situation, because there are moments, and I I definitely know this, um, there are moments where you just, you don't have a moment to, to pause, to hit the pause button, or to tell the student that you'll get back to them, because the behavior has already gotten quite out of control. And so we'll talk about what those moments look like too and how to address it in a trauma-informed way um, so that you don't find yourself afterwards being like, oh God, what have I done? (laughs) Because I know that it's really easy to get to that place too where you get too frustrated, too overwhelmed and you've kicked the kid out of class. And realistically, that's what we're trying to prevent with trauma-informed practice. We don't want to be kicking kids out of class. We don't wanna be sending them to admin because, um, and we'll talk about this later too, one of the foundational needs that kids have is connection. And so uh, trauma-informed practice enhances connection, increases the number of healthy adults in the young person's life and can be a driving force behind change and providing new healthy social responses to historical traumas. And that's huge, huge. So that's it for unit one. Um, I hope that you come back for unit two. Uh, and I hope that this has been helpful for you in unit two we're looking a little more specifically at. Um, at. Uh, yes, how trauma presents in behaviors and looking at diagnostic criteria, so that you can see how behavior actually um, is basically reflective of different diagnostic criteria. And in this module, I don't have any homework, but because I do want this to be quality professional development, um, you'll see at the end of many of the modules, my best attempt at making the professional development practical so that you have strategies that you can try so you're trying them out before you go and practice them in class, and even some things that you can work straight into your classroom so that you're not wasting your time doing extra homework on top of your marking and your grading and all of that other stuff that you have to do. Of My trauma-informed practice for simplifying classroom management. Uh, you'll have heard throughout that whole thing why I don't like the term classroom management. And hopefully you were able to take away just some information that is helpful for you pursuing trauma-informed practice. And of course there's tons of day-long pro out there. I've often found them to not be super thorough or helpful. Uh, I'm putting together a day-long Pro-D actually for for February with a colleague of mine, and so I'm trying really hard to make sure that they're practical resources. So I hope that you, uh, you enjoyed this episode, and if you are interested in finding the full course, it's going to be available in a couple of different places. So first, you can purchase it on my website. It'll be available there. You can either buy per module if there's only certain pieces that you need. I've found that lots of the Pro that I've done, I've been able to get elements of what I need, so if there's only aspects of trauma-informed practice that you feel you're missing, then you can purchase by module, so you don't have to purchase the whole course. And if you do want to purchase the full course, that will also be available on my website. The other place that it'll be available is on Udemy, the uh, the course like website where you can buy. Uh, You can buy courses for things. So I'm hoping that you have enjoyed this. And again, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, I'm super available. You can email me at thecontemporaryeducator at gmail.com. Or you can send me a message through my website at thecontemporaryeducator.com. Or you can hit me up on Instagram at teach.emote.repeat. Thanks for listening, and I really hope to hear from you.